0: Well, good evening. If you would like to join me, please. We'll be in the book of Daniel tonight. It's going to be the book of Daniel, chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you that you have established a kingdom, that it is an eternal kingdom built upon Christ and his righteousness. We thank you and praise you that it is a kingdom without end, that it will never fail, that you will never fail to protect and uphold it. We pray now that you would build our confidence that Christ is the, the rock of ages on which we stand, if we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. We're in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, which reads, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever forever. About 175 years after Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and uh, maybe about 400 years before the birth of our Lord, uh, a Greek general and historian, an adventurer named Xenophon and his army of 10,000 mercenaries were hired to fight in modern-day Iraq. They were uh, part of a dynastic war of succession within the Persian Empire. And things went sideways for his employer's cause, and Xenophon and his men had to beat a quick retreat back to Greece with the Persians hot on their trail. And as they were approaching the Tigris River, something stopped him in his tracks, made him forget all about his pursuers for a moment. He saw uh, an enormous city. It was far larger and ornately built than anything in Greece at the time. It had uh, you know, palaces and libraries, uh, temple complexes. It was surrounded by walls 60 feet high and 40 feet thick, about seven and a half miles around. And the whole thing was a ghost town. It was totally abandoned. The exception of some, uh, you know, nomadic shepherd types and wild animals running around. The whole thing was just slowly being swallowed up by the vegetation and being ground back down into the sand. Xenophon uh, asked the people around it, you know, uh, what is this place? Who built this and where are they? And nobody knows. They think uh, maybe the Medes built it, but they don't really know. Xenophon never really got his answer, but he wrote about it, and uh, no one understood uh, what the place was for about 22 centuries. Eventually, the city was lost altogether until about 1842. It was rediscovered by an archaeologist, and it's what we now know as the remains of the great Assyrian city of Nineveh. Brought to the exact end that the Lord swore that it would, 215 years before Xenophon stumbled upon it. Well, that's uh, a strange way to start a devotional about Daniel 2.44. Uh, so if the illustration's not clear, uh, permit me a second shorter one. Uh, you know, the great pyramids of Egypt uh, were once the symbol of uh, pharaonic power and Egyptian greatness. They were uh, old, very old By the time of our Lord's birth, and look at them now. The only purpose they serve now is to be a nice backdrop for a picture of Paul Alexander popping a dope wheelie on a horse. So much for the glory of the God kings of Egypt. All right, I'm losing the point here. Better get on with it. Uh, Here we go. Introduction, take two. The book of Daniel is one we're all pretty much familiar with. It's got some of the most famous stories in the Bibles, uh, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the ghostly handwriting on the wall. It's got stories most of us probably can't even remember a time of when we didn't know them. Uh, It's also one that's familiar to us for its cryptic visions and dreams, the abrupt and sometimes jarring passages of uh, an unspecified amount of time, confusing historical details as to who exactly is ruling who and from where. It's a book that's probably caused uh, as many head scratches in it as any others. It's maybe produced just as many attempts to decipher the visions. And the great interest that People seem to have in it is uh, that the dreams and visions in Daniel, in a way, kind of function as a sort of historical and spiritual roadmap of the kingdoms of men and the kingdom of Christ. Nebuchadnezzar's first dream certainly is, anyway. You know the one, right? He uh, has a dream of a statue of a man made up of various parts of decreasingly precious materials: a head of gold, a torso of silver. Legs of bronze and a feet of iron mixed with clay, each part represents uh, increasingly powerful empires which dominated the Near East. It's got the stone cut from the mountain by the Lord that smashes the statue to pieces. Our verse tonight isn't strictly about the statue, but it's important that we talk about it a bit just for the sake of contrast when we're considering The kingdom of Christ that the Lord says that he will be setting up since the dream is about the kingdom of Christ demolishing the kingdoms of men. The statue, the statue dream, excuse me, was a a glimpse of things to come uh, or the things that were to come. Um, Yeah, we'll go with yes and. It's a glimpse of the way things are in the history of the world and always will be until the Lord returns. So when the passage uh, says that the smashing happens in the day of those kings, which kings exactly is that? The the Caesars? Uh, maybe, good bet. Depends on who you ask about it. At last, kingdom is without a doubt Rome, but uh, You know, all all of these kingdoms that the Lord's going to bring to an end in the dream were already smashed to smithereens by the time uh, the Caesars even came to power. The Roman Republic smashed the Greek kingdoms who smashed the Achaemenid Empire, who smashed the Babylonians, who smashed tiny little Judah. How in the day of those kings, whoever they are, is the Lord going to break into pieces kingdoms that were already broken into pieces well, uh, the short answer that's going to keep me from rambling down another historical rabbit trail and is going to keep us from missing the need to know about this passage is that the statue does represent real and specific kingdoms, but it also stands as something of a type for the world of man going about its general course. Now, one kingdom rises, another supplants it. There is one of greater glory, another of lesser it's kind of just a picture uh, as business as usual for humanity. It's also not really business as usual. If you'll forgive me pulling the old bait and switch, something is different about the specific nation seen in the statue and the ones that came before it. They've got a tiny little nation in their midst that belongs to the Lord, don't they? Christ's church used to be localized in the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. But Assyria scattered the northern ten tribes abroad a generation or two before Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar sent the Judahites into exile. And the church was evicted evicted from the land along with the unfaithful. And now they're all over the place. They're mixed in with the Gentiles. Their fates mixed in with the fate of the nations. The hope of a Davidic king seems to have all but failed. And so while the Lord's people are in exile and all seems to be lost, to encourage them and to prepare them for things to come, to prepare them for a future of being violently passed back and forth between nations, to prepare them for centuries of abuse, and to prepare the way of the Lord for them. The Lord sends Nebuchadnezzar a dream. The dream isn't for him. The dream's given to him, but the interpretation of it is not given to him, uh, nor his astrologers or his wise men. It's given to Daniel to be recorded for the comfort and the consolation of the Lord's people. And the interpretation of he gives a certain and the meaning is sure. The Lord's promises to the patriarchs, his promise to David, hadn't failed. The earthly kingdom of Israel is gone and it's not coming back. But something far better is coming. But the dream wasn't just for the Israelite church of the old covenant. It's for us. As well, the Church of Christ is still a nation within nations. From the days of Nebuchadnezzar till this very day, no one nation ever contained or was uniquely associated with the Church. We're still his elect exiles living in the world, but is not of it. So with the time we have left, we're going to look at three encouragements for us to be found in our passage while we wait For the coming of the Lord, and the first, uh, the first encouragement is that the Lord is building on a solid foundation. The kingdoms of men are liable to fall by their very own nature. You'll recall in the dream that the statue is made up of various materials of lesser and lesser value. It's a picture of disunity and instability. The dream of the statue, indeed, the the dreams of humanity, is one of a united humanity, all one man. It is, however, a dream and nothing more. It's the Lord who separated us at Babel, prevented us from forming a global conspiracy to glorify ourselves in defiance of the Lord. That doesn't stop people from trying. The Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans—all of them—they ruled huge, multi-ethnic, multicultural, uh, multinational empires. The thing is, you, you can't really weld gold to silver; those don't mix. The gold kind of just melts under the heat. Iron and clay don't mix, like in the statue, and so they don't exactly make for a sturdy foundation. And huge empires built on greed and violence can't stand any better. The whole thing, even without direct divine intervention, is sure to stumble over all by itself. It was true in Daniel's time. It's true on our own. The, the habits and customs of men have changed, but the sinful nature of man hasn't changed Man's still corrupt, self-seeking, vain, petty, vengeful. Nothing built on the sinful foundation of man's ambition can stand forever. There simply is no sure foundation to build on. But the Lord promised his people in the days of Nebuchadnezzar that he would establish a kingdom that isn't like the kingdom of men. It's not one built by human hands, but by the Lord It's not part of the statue. He cuts it from a stone in the mountain, and it's a kingdom not built on national identity or cultural affinity or even by force or coercion. It's a kingdom built on Christ as the first of a nation of redeemed humanity, drawn in from all corners of the world, bound together by the Lord in one hope. It's one body of many parts all working together towards one goal of glorifying Christ united by one spirit to one another and to God through Christ's atoning work. It's not one body of clearly irreconcilable parts boasting over each other for who's the most glorious or the most important. Christ's kingdom will never fall from the rot of internal corruption that tends to bring down the kingdoms of men, but it will grow strong until it covers the earth in righteousness. Encouragement number two, the Lord will protect it. Not only are the kingdoms of men liable by their own nature to be destroyed, but they're also liable to be destroyed by each other. They all get caught sleeping at one point or another by a nation stronger than it. That's the most immediately obvious relationship that the kingdoms uh, seen in the statue have in common. As we've already heard, they all replaced one another in a violent succession. Uh, But the other thing they have in common is that their relationship with the Israelite church, and it should be a marvel of all marvels to us that despite their best efforts, none of them could seem to quite destroy the small and puny Israelites, from Pharaoh to today, who's ever succeeded in destroying Christ's church? The kingdom of Christ is a solid rock. It can't be broken or destroyed. It's not going to be left to another. You're never going to walk up to this building one day and see under new management hanging on the wall. It's the Lord's kingdom, his own cherished blood-bought people, It's sworn to Christ. He has and will protect it from even the fiercest of opposition. The 400 years between the Old and New Testament was perhaps the most violent and oppressive that the Lord's people had ever faced. Yet, for the sake of his son's kingdom and for his promises to them, he preserved them. Not only so, but through it, he made that them long for and look for the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And so, with the sure confidence that uh, Christ's kingdom can never be destroyed, that it's been protected through hideously cruel oppression, can we not bear the mild discomfort of not being the cultural or political majority Will we worry that some petty amateur warlord in Asia or Africa or the Middle East is going to snuff out the light of Christ in those places? Far more competent monsters have tried and failed. We should rather be like old Simeon and Anna who spent their days at the doors of the temple waiting patiently for Israel's consolation while Rome was brutalizing the country. The Lord has already protected and carried his church through so much. He'll protect her still. Thirdly and lastly, the Lord will avenge the mistreatment of his people. Lastly, our considerations, uh, they're incomplete without talking about the final dramatic image of the statue. The hand of the Lord doesn't just cut a stone from the, the mountain, a sturdy, immovable foundation to build on, but he hurls it right into the statue and smashes it into pieces. The kingdoms of men which seem so imposing, so magnificent and so alluring now are on a collision course with the kingdom of Christ. Those proud kingdoms of iron and blood are doomed to fall before the gentle and lowly kingdom of Christ. And if they should seem to prevail here or there for a time, we do not need to worry. The Lord has them right where he wants them. Look at how magnificent Babylon was in, his, in its time and how unstoppable Rome was. Look how terrifying Assyria was to the kings of Israel and Judah and then consider again the sad state of that city Nineveh just a few centuries later. These are all snapshots of a final, universal crushing of all that opposes Christ and his church. Babylon is gone, but there will always be a Babylon. Babylon was long gone by the time of the apostles, yet Peter knew Rome was only different from it in superficialities. We have reason to believe yet that there's still some greater Manifestation of earthly power and authority to rear its head against the church, but we can take comfort. Daniel might have been terrified by the beasts in his dreams and puzzled at the meaning of his vision of the coming of the Son of Man, but we've been blessed to be born on this side of the cross. We know that no matter how dark things get and how cruel and powerful, The enemies of Christ become. The battle is over. The victory is won already. Christ has disarmed all powers and principalities. He's destroyed the claim of sin and death over us. He sent out to the ends of the earth the good news of his victory. We don't need to be frightened in the night about the history of things to come like Daniel was. The final interpretation of the dream of the statue is even more certain now than it was to Daniel. For 2,400 years, the Church of Christ has been sojourning and exiles among the nations, abused and mistreated, hated and oppressed, and there it shall stay until Christ comes in power to separate them himself. But the stone has been cut, and it is hurtling on its way to demolish the kingdoms of men, even as we speak. Christ has come once to deal with sin, and He will come again to deliver His people. And if He should tarry for a a little while longer while the world goes from bad to worse, then what's a few thousand years between friends? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sworn to give a kingdom to your son to rule, that we can be confident with him at the head of uh, of his church. We pray that you would make us uh, faithful messengers of the gospel of his victory over sin and death, that we would not uh, fear uh, kingdoms and, and powers and principalities either of men or of spiritual powers, but that we would go in the confidence of uh, the apostles and missionaries of old, that we would proclaim the gospel to every living creature on the earth, that we would entrust ourselves completely to Christ's perfect care. We pray that you would glorify yourself through this. uh, We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.